All right, listen up. I don't like white people. I hate rednecks. You people are rednecks. That means I'm enjoying this shit. What the hell kind of cop are you? You know what I am? I'm your worst fucking nightmare, man. I'm a nigga with a badge. That means I got permission to kick your fucking ass whenever I feel like it. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and man, you do not want to ruffle her, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of Norman Jewison's In the Heat of the Night from 1967. Nakia, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is currently Black History Month. To be fair, it's really hard to tell at the moment. <laughs> How is your Black History Month going <laughs> so far? I mean, well, last year we had Black Panther. Yeah. This year we have Blackface. So <laughs> that's that's how it's going. It's It's been a, a rough, what, nine days now? Nine days <laughs> been, and counting. Yeah. So we had the governor and attorney general of Virginia come out as, I don't even know what, Blackfacers. Um, <laughs> Blackfacers. <laughs> They, were, they didn't come out so much as get out. Yeah, they were they, as, they were outed as blackfacers. As um, mm-hmm. Though the attorney general may have admitted once he he saw he may have actually come out and said I I participated in blackface. Yes, whereas um, the governor was unsure in the in the yearbook photo in right. question whether he was the guy in blackface or, or the, the guy clan in robes. clan robes. Right. He does though remember that he did put shoe polish on his face to impersonate <laughs> Michael Jackson for a uh, like a contest or something where he apparently did an impeccable moonwalk yes um so we've had that we had uh liam neeson (laughs) offer unsolicited a story about how he basically attempted to lynch a random black man about 40 years ago yeah so yeah it's been it's been a rough one you did order that nice new sweater from gucci though here's what okay (laughs) Here's the nice thing about being broke. There's really very little chance that I'm going to have to have like go through my closet and throw away some Gucci or some Prada uh, or some Dolce because I can't afford that shit anyway. But yes, um, Gucci <laughs> in a long line of fashion houses making just egregious design choices and, and tone deaf choices around race. Uh, they recently Yeah, this is just a few weeks after Prada got right. in trouble Prada for selling was little, little essentially little Sambo right. tchotchke sort of things. They were trying to sell those and then it was a surprise of like, oh, this is racist imagery. We were not aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yes, Gucci not too far after was trying to sell these turtleneck sweaters and they were black and they had a slit at the turtleneck at the sort of the neck piece so that you could pull it over your mouth and then it would look like you had and sort of the red big giant red, lips. red lips and then right. it was like so obviously it was a black face sweater it was a black face sweater but again we had no idea 
And this sort of, you know, you hear people talk about, well, these tend to be Italian or European houses, and maybe they aren't aware, quote unquote, <laughs> of this sort of offensive iconography. And But these are people that work in imagery, and these yeah. are people who do a lot of research around imagery and the power of imaging. So I am less willing to sort of accept that excuse of like, oh, well, they just didn't know. Like, bullshit, your whole job is images and mm-hmm. historical research and all this So. And then you get the, oh, they just need to hire more black people or more people of color in their company. It's like, okay, well, they could have all the black people in the world. But if those black people don't feel like they are in a space to actually challenge and then have those challenges respected and acted upon, then that doesn't matter either. So, yeah, don't pay 800 something dollars for a black face sweater. Do something different. <laughs> Donate to the, you know, United Negro College Fund or something. Like, just don't do it. So Yeah, it, it, is, it has been a rock month yeah, it so has. far. It has been pretty, pretty bleak. In line with the rest of 2019 and 2018, to be quite frank. So. In 2017. And 2017 20, and 2016. End of 2016. <laughs> uh, so last week here, mm-hmm. we watched about as white a movie as we have ever watched. And that is saying a lot. I mean, we watched some pretty white movies, so I don't we know watched that some that's pretty white movies, the but whitest that one movie. was pretty damn white. Mm. So that was my bad yeah. for starting off Black History Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the remainder of February, we are going to try to rectify that a little bit. So we're going to fit all the black films into February. We're not going to fit all the black films. I'm just saying we don't watch black films normally, but now we're going to be watching all the black films. <laughs> we so. have watched some black films. No, that's okay. As I said last week, it is kind of hard to find significant films with predominantly black casts and or made by black filmmakers that you have not already seen. Mm-hmm. You are fairly well versed in black cinema. <laughs> And in fact, you are better versed than I am, so I think in one of the upcoming weeks, we are going to switch chairs. We haven't done that in a while, mm-hmm. and you are going to introduce me to one of your favorite movies that I have not seen. We're thinking about it, sure. <laughs> you haven't decided on the movie yet, have you? You know, I get tired of being a, the black teacher, <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. We'll think about it. That's fair. Okay, but this week we're watching In the Heat of the Night, which is an important film in Hollywood history, starring pretty inarguably the most important black actor of his generation, sure. Sidney Poitier. What is your familiarity with Poitier? I'm not sure you've seen a lot of Sidney Poitier movies. I haven't seen a lot. I have seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and A Raisin in the Sun. Okay. But that's I think that's the extent of my Poitier okay. repertoire. So let's let's talk about Sidney Poitier. Okay. Uh, as we record this, Poitier is one week shy of his 92nd birthday. Yes. Uh, he is actually the oldest living male Oscar recipient. It's a weird category. Uh, women live longer than men, so there's like five female Oscar recipients in mm-hmm. their 90s or older. I think Olivia de Havilland is like 102 and still suing people. <laughs> but it's been, I think, almost 20 years since he's made a movie. Mm-hmm. So he's pretty retired. Still looks pretty good the last time I saw him. Yeah. Black is beautiful. But he was born in 1927, the child of Bahamian farmers. So he's mm-hmm. actually Bahamian-American. People refer yes. to him as African-American. He's not. No. Yeah. And he is one of the greatest American actors, really only by accident. His parents happened to be visiting Miami when he was born prematurely. Mm. So he was born in America. So he had dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. At 15, he was sent to live in Miami. And at 16, he moved to New York. He was basically sleeping in bus stations. He was working as a dishwasher and janitor. And he auditioned for a place in the American Negro Theater in Harlem. Mm-hmm. This is the theater troupe that produced such notables as Harry Belafonte, Ossie Davis, and Ruby D. Like a lot of the great black actors of that generation came out of that theater. Mm-hmm. 
he bombed his audition. He had no experience. He had a thick Bahamian accent. accent. I came across a story of him a long time ago that was talking about the fact that he had a really thick Caribbean accent and that what he ended up doing, I think, was like watching a lot of newscasters and then Mm -hmm. aping that sort of, you know, what has come to be known as the sort of neutral accent, but it is, it's particularly very like white racialized Yeah, it's that sort of white East Coast upper class accent. Um, So I thought that that was... It's almost that sort of Catherine Hepburn kind of accent. Yeah, Very interesting. But he talked himself into a job there as a janitor or janitor's assistant, and he ended up understudying Harry Belafonte in a play. Mm. And in the very cliched Hollywood success story, Belafonte didn't show up one night, mm. and Sidney Poitier had to go on. It's all about Eve situation. Yep. Okay. Exactly. And... You know, an agent or somebody in the audience happened to see him. And from that, he got a job on Broadway in a production of Lysistrata. That play apparently bombed as well, but he got fairly decent reviews. And out of that came this movie career. His first film role was in Joseph Mankiewicz's No Way Out in 1950. It's a film noir. And he plays a, he's the first black doctor at an urban hospital Mm -hmm. who ends up treating these two racist criminals. One of Uh. them is played by Richard Widmark. And this, I think, sort of sets this pattern for a lot of Poitier's movies. Where he's the lead or the co-lead, but he is this exemplary black man Mm -hmm. forced into interaction with racist white people. And in narrative terms, he very often, his character didn't really have an arc. Mm -hmm. He was the catalyst for the white characters to have an arc. And that's a quote-unquote classic Hollywood dynamic that has never gone away, as evidenced by the fact that Green Book... inexplicably winning awards this season. But this happened a lot. He became the first black actor nominated for Best Actor Oscar with 1958's The Defiant Ones, where he was an escaped convict, literally chained to this white racist played by Tony Curtis. He became the first black man to win an Oscar for Lilies in the Field in 1963 as a black handyman who was helping this group of German nuns build a chapel. A Patch of Blue, he was a black man who fell in love with a blind white woman Mm. in a southern racist city. Uh, 1965's Pressure Point, he was a psychiatrist, again, forced to treat a white neo-Nazi, played by Bobby Darin. And then, of course, 1967. 1967, Sidney Poitier was the highest earning actor in Hollywood. Period? hmm? Period? Period. Oh, okay. He had three huge movies, which was In the Heat of the Night, Mm -hmm. which is him and this white Southern racist sheriff. No, yeah, I know the idea. My grandma watched the TV show, so I know the TV show. I I know the basic (laughs) To Sir with Love, where he's a teacher in London, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where he is the... Perfect boyfriend. The perfect fiancé for Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn's upper-class waspy daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. So I thought we would talk about that because as successful as Poitier was and as much respect as everyone in the world has for Sidney Poitier, yes. there was a backlash against Poitier towards the end of the 60s and going into the 70s mm-hmm. from the black community. As he himself discussed in his memoir, Measure of a Man, he said, There was more than a little dissatisfaction rising up against me in certain corners of the black community. The issue boiled down to why I wasn't more angry and confrontational. New voices were speaking for African Americans and in new ways. 
Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, the Black Panthers. According to a certain taste that was coming into ascendancy at the time, I was an Uncle Tom, even a house Negro. For playing roles that were non-threatening to white audiences. For playing the noble Negro who fulfills white liberal fantasies. And this is something a lot of people talked about. Amira Baraka wrote a whole satirical play about Sidney Poitier. Mm. James Baldwin, who was friends with Poitier, criticized his role in movies like The Defiant Ones and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm -hmm. Again, talking about how he was such the perfect, non-threatening black man that no one could possibly object to. And guess who's coming to dinner? He's a world-renowned surgeon and stuff. <laughs> and Baldwin, he basically said that a lot of black people felt like the image of Sidney Poitier was being used against them. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, if you can be this sort of black person, you're acceptable. Mm-hmm. And if you can't live up to that standard, forget about it. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of a lot of conversations you and I have had, because we'll be in situations where I will say, well, why don't you get angry? Like dealing with customer service and that kind of stuff <laughs> or stuff that happens in the office or whatever. Why don't you get angry? Mm-hmm. Why don't you get mad? Why don't you tell them you're angry? And you always say, I, I can't do that. Right. The sort of social costs for me to get angry or to behave in any way that would be seen as sort of deviant from, you know, the sort of social norms is very, very expensive for me. Mm-hmm. So in a moment, I have to to weigh a lot of factors of just like, how much bullshit do I want to deal with at this point? What is going to be the results of my acting out, even if it is for justified reasons? And m- more often than not, it's it's just easier to not go to that place. Right. And there is this feeling of a little bit of responsibility of, if you do, it is very easy for that narrative to become, angry black woman did X, right? Or, you know. Right. And you see it more in, like, workplaces. Like, I know that I do not bring my full self to my job. I know that there are ways that I mute myself at my job because, again, the sort of costs of of not doing so, you know, are really high. And the same behaviors that can be seen as sort of cute or eccentric eccentric or acceptable being performed by a white person would be seen as problematic coming from right. me right it would be seen you and you and i for a while worked at the same place mm-hmm. and we'd have these conversations where if i lost my temper in a meeting right i'm just a dick right if you lose your temper in a meeting you are the angry black woman right exactly and it wouldn't even be necessarily that you were a dick it was just oh that's that's michael that's yeah. how michael is and they, right. they would still respect what you said and they may even you know you may even change the minds by what you said and it would not be taken the same way coming from me so yeah i mean that is i think that's a dance that a lot of you know folks of color have to do and you make your choices and you know some swords are worth dying on and others aren't mm-hmm. um so like the customer service shit like it's just not it's not worth me dying for that <laughs> like just okay whatever right. like i'm gonna be as polite as i can and try to get this and and quite frankly when we're talking about customer service and in some other spaces it's actually more effective for me to use my white polite voice <laughs> Mm-hmm. My white woman voice. And mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to speak to you like this. And I'm going to ask this because, you know. So then it would be for me to get hostile with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And this, I think, is is what Sidney Poitier was dealing with in mm-hmm. his entire career. Mm-hmm. And I think a choice he made, and probably very smartly. Mm-hmm. And you can look at other actors from that time. I mean, before Poitier... Probably the most prominent mainstream black actor was Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. And he was not like that. No. He was angry. He was confrontational. He was an activist. And he did not have Sidney Poitier's career. In right. fact, he was eventually basically blacklisted. Yeah. So that 
that trade-off, I think, was one that he made consciously. And it was also, though it's easy to look back and say, oh, he was, you know, too perfect and too noble and Mm -hmm. too much that figure. At the time, that was a new character. Yeah. A new black figure for Hollywood where there had been less flattering portrayals of black men on screen. Yeah. Well, and I also think, I don't know, I do, you know, I'm always careful about sort of that sort of like reflective criticism that I think sometimes strips people of their agency and and sort of denies them the benefit of the doubt that they put some thought into who they wanted to be and what they wanted to represent in the world. Right? Right. So like you have an actress like Hattie McDaniel and it's easy to look back from now and be like, oh, well, she played maids. Right. And that was just, you know, a detriment to the black race. And it's like, well, let's talk about the choices that she had at that time. Let's talk about how she embodied those characters and what she brought to those mm-hmm. characters that went beyond what was on the page of Black Maid. And let's talk about the doors that she opened because she was playing those parts. Right. Same with someone like Paul Rowe. Like, he went a different road, but, like, he made a choice of, like, who he wanted to be and who he wanted to represent. Uh, Sidney Poitier also made a choice about who, like, he mimicked white newscasters. Like, he mm-hmm. knew what he was doing, right? And so this idea that, I don't know, I just feel like sometimes that narrative can be reductive of these people and sort of denies the reality of, like, what American systems are, particularly something like Hollywood that has never been particularly welcoming mm-hmm. <laughs> to folks of color, particularly black people, and that you have to make a choice, right? And it's like, this is who I need to be now so that you can maybe be somebody later, somebody mm-hmm. different, somebody mm-hmm. nuanced, somebody with layers. And can it be weaponized? Absolutely. You can have an actor like Sidney Poitier and, like, why don't all black people act like Sidney Poitier? And that still happens. Like, you know, black people shouldn't complain about inequality in America because you have Barack Obama and you have Oprah. Right. It's like, exactly. so you, 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 you know, you know, you weaponize these. these well, in ex- the years when Cosby was right, on top exactly. Of these exceptions be- can become weaponized against yeah. the communities that they represent, right? But like, is that the fault of Poitier? Is that the fault of Obama? Is that the mm. fault of Oprah? Is that the fault of Cosby? Like, no, it's, it is the fault of a system. That is that can sort of only survive if this myth of meritocracy is upheld, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's that's really all it is. Is like you have to ma- you have you need an example so you can say, see, every black person can do it because this one, two or three black people can do it, right? The thing with Cosby, like that's a whole other like <laughs> right. Cosby had other faults. <laughs> well, well, and the, and knowing what we know about him now, that was a very conscious construction of a persona to distract and sort of obfuscate. And create, like, plausible deniability around what was happening behind closed doors, right? And he was u- the, he was using this very um, America's dad, clean, quote-unquote, persona and the power that came with that to abuse women. Right. And it was hard for folks to believe because they were so tied to the imagery of Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other thing that could be a whole a, an entire conversation unto itself. So I'm, you know... Sidney Poitier, I've heard people sort of talk about his films. It's like he didn't make films. He sort of made, he made like moments, like they were milestones. So it wasn't so much about the the brilliance of the film. It was just, it was Sidney Poitier and he was doing this. It was like, it, it was this moment right. in right. American history, right? It was, it was more than a film. And so I think sometimes we can lose him just as an artist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because he's sort of so tied up in... With these kind of watershed moments. With these moments, moments right? And so... I think, so when we sort of criticize his choices or anything, like, I I feel like at some point we sort of lose him and Mm -hmm. it just becomes about something totally different. And was he, for the most part, asexual in his roles? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Was he, you know, very sort of sterile characters 
And they were these sort of perfect, elegant, um, articulate men who more often than not were in the service to the sort of personal growth of the white characters around him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Was he also, or he is alive, he is also a brilliant actor. Yes. With uh, immense talent. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Like, he is mesmerizing on screen. I love him in Raisin in the Sun. Mm-hmm. So I'm always like, I think we need to just have a little bit And he bit originated more. that role on yeah. Broadway, and that is... One of the few films of his that you can look at and say that's an all black, right? Cast. That's an all black, and it was and a black story. He's and- so powerful and wonderful in it. But again, it's like it is raising the sun is like a moment, mm-hmm. right? But so I, I always want to you know leave some grace for folks like that, right? Just like he also, and I think this gets forgotten towards the end of the '60s and going into the '70s when he started to pull away from acting, he became a director, mm-hmm. and I think it would be interesting to do a study of the films he made for White Hollywood versus the films he made for himself, because mm-hmm. he made Uptown Saturday Night, yeah, for example, um, which he made. I think there were three or four of those films with Bill Cosby, and so that's problematic now <laughs> to go back and <laughs> it's watch. It's all tainted. <laughs> but those are very different sorts of yeah. films than what he was making for White Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, we're going to watch one of his films next week. Uh, as Laura Jacobs wrote at Vanity Fair, young African-Americans were beginning to ask if there was no way out of this unjust standard, one that Poitier himself described as, you're going to have to be twice as good as the white folks mm-hmm. in order to get half as much. A more radical black pride was moving into the mainstream, and African-Americans wanted to see black actors in black stories. The hero of integration, which is, is how she describes Sidney Poitier, mm. gave way to the hair-trigger bravado of Shaft and Superfly. <laughs> Poitier saw the backlash coming. The angry payback of the black exploitation film was just around the corner, he wrote, and my career as a leading man in Hollywood was nearing its end. He understood and accepted it as a necessary step forward for his race. He took a breather and then moved to new ground, directing and acting in black romances and a handful of hugely successful comedies. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's, and again, like, we also just need to check ourselves, right? Because that sort of feeling that you need to be twice as good to get half as much, Mm -hmm. that is very real. And that is still very much the case in a lot of academic spaces and professional spaces Mm -hmm. for for black folks in particular. And as much as you would, you know, you want to judge someone like Poitier, ask yourself, when you walk into work, are you walking in as Shaft or are you walking in as Poitier? Okay. So we're all making those choices every day and we all are choosing Poitier. Right. You are not as We would love to be Shaft. In your right. mind, you are Shaft. When you, you know, do the first draft of the email, you're drafting it as Shaft. And then you go in and you edit that shit out. Right. And you put your little, you know, passive aggressive CC in there. That's your little Shaft moment. But you sit in the meetings as Poitier right. and then you get out of the meetings and, and you I call, call me. you and I'm like, fuck. These fuckers, I'm fucking done with this bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and this was a man who was at the height of American culture, right? Mm -hmm. And had a huge responsibility as a black man in Hollywood. We are just And broke every ceiling there was to break. We got bills. That's really it. So, yeah, you're going to be Poitier. You're not going to be Shaft. (laughs) Would love to be Shaft, but we're not going to be. To the young African-American filmmakers who have arrived on the playing field, I am filled with pride that you are here. I am sure you have, like me, discovered it was never impossible. It was just harder. It is gratifying to see, and may the world take note, that you didn't let harder stop you. 
Welcome, young bloods. Those of us who go before you glance back with satisfaction and leave you with a simple trust. Be true to yourselves and be useful to the journey. Okay, so what do you actually know about In the Heat of the Night? So, my grandma was a big fan of the television show. Okay. Um, with... That was, ran from, I think, 87 to like 95 or yes. something. Pretty I successful show. a lot of just random shit at my grandma's house. <laughs> like, that's where I get my whole Unsolved Mysteries backlog from. Oh, uh, yeah. Creepy show. Um, that The theme music of that show still will send tingles <laughs> up my spine. But yes, so she was a big fan of the In the Heat of the Night, the television show, uh, with Howard E. Rollins Jr. playing Tibbs, uh-huh, um, and Carol O'Connor. Connor playing yep. Gillespie, <laughs> and I distinctly remember Alan Autry, who played Bubba uh, Skinner as one of the officers, and um, Tibbs was married to Anne Marie Johnson in that show as well. I think later seasons of that show, Carl Weathers was on it, too. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I don't remember that. I think, I think Rollins was on it less than he was sort of a recurring character, and Carl Weathers took over the, uh, okay. the black counterpart role. <laughs> So that's what I remember about in the well. That's my reference for okay. in the heat of the night. But then I've also I came across it in there was this article by Anne Hornaday that came out in 2013, and it was called 12 Years a Slave: Mother of George and the Aesthetic Politics of Filming Black Skin." Okay, and it was sort of all about the sort of evolution of film and film technology in its ability to sort of recognize and honor the sort of diversity of black skin. And there's a quote in there from Steve McQueen where he says, I remember growing up and seeing Sidney Poitier sweating next to Rod Steiger in In the Heat of the Night. And obviously that was because it's very hot in the South. But also he was sweating because he had tons of light thrown on him because the film stock wasn't sensitive enough for black skin. Right. So it's all about sort of how directors had to... Just blast black actors with light. Sort of overexpose them, you know, in order for them to show up properly in scenes with their, their white counterparts. And how it was so difficult in film for a very long time to properly light black folks. And that was, one, the technology was based off of white skin. So it was like a standard quote unquote, you know, normal range of skin tones. And so no one had ever thought to change the technology. The thinking was, okay, well, now we just have to find a way to sort of essentially abuse our (laughs) black actors in order to get them to show. I mean, there are instances where. Black actors had to have, like, Vaseline put on their face in order to sort of reflect the light. Mm-hmm. But now, thankfully, we have folks like Ava DuVernay and Steve McQueen mm-hmm. and Barry Jenkins and uh, Bradford Young, who's a cinematographer, who are, you know, immensely talented and have created some of the sort of most beautiful portrayals of the variety of blackness it's something when you when you see it done right it is stunning stunning. it is stunning barry jenkins newest film Mm -hmm. if beale street could talk just the cinematography of the skin in that movie is amazing yeah and i mean ava's i mean queen sugar yeah the tv show queen sugar there's so many different types of blackness and they are it is all just beautiful and just it and it's such a weird you don't even realize that it was something that you missed until mm. you see it done properly. And it's just like, oh, my God, how beautiful are we? Yeah. It feels like respect. It feels like honor. Um, and it feels like you've been seen for the first time. I mean, Moonlight, so mm. much of that film is filmed in, in darkness at yeah. nighttime. And the, the way the skin is just illuminated, it is so artfully done. Yeah, that's sort of my <laughs> my little tidbit of knowledge around the film in the okay. night is just the the sort of things that Sidney Poitier had to go through in order to just be seen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about this movie. 
Directed by Norman Jewison, who is an interesting guy. He's still alive. He's, I think he's 92 years old or something now. Uh, but he had a 50-year career and a very good one and a very diverse career. Uh, he was nominated for Best Director three times for In the Heat of the Night, for Fiddler on the Roof, and for Moonstruck. Uh, none of which I think you've seen, probably all of which are on our list. No. He also directed The Cincinnati Kid, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Thomas Crown Affair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rollerball, A Soldier's Story, Agnes of God, and The Hurricane, the Denzel Washington movie. Oh, yeah, no, okay. Decide, yeah. That might be the only one you've seen. Yeah, I have seen that. Okay. And as Rita Kempley says in the Washington Post, Jewison is a journeyman director, something of a cultural anthropologist, and a social Samaritan. And I think that's a good description of hmm. him. I mean, he is... I think a lot like Sidney Lumet, who we discussed in our episode on Dog Day Afternoon, mm -hmm. he's underrated in part because he's not this sort of auteur director with a signature style. I think he very much serves the story of whatever he's working on mm -hmm. and is kind of a jack of all trades in that way. But for a white Canadian, which is what he is, <laughs> he does seem to have a real interest in and eye for and flair for cultural texture, let mm -hmm. us call it. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the Russian Jews in Fiddler on the Roof or Italian-American society in Moonstruck or Black American Life, which he's done in three movies, Hurricane, A Soldier's Story. That's a good movie. Have you ever seen that? I have not seen A Soldier's Story. I really Story. like that movie. And In the Heat of the Night. He was, came across this interesting tidbit, he was originally slated to direct Malcolm X. Really? Yeah. And in fact, it was he who hired Denzel Washington to play huh. Malcolm X. And then when it was announced, criticism started coming in about a white director mm. doing this story, predominantly from Spike Lee, who had always <laughs> wanted to do it. And Jewison, in Spike Lee's words, bowed out gracefully and hmm. said, you know, go ahead. Interesting. Yeah. So In the Heat of the Night was written by screenwriter Stephen Siliphant, based on an Edgar Award-winning novel by John Ball, released in 1965. And I came across this article by John Ridley, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave, writing in Vanity Fair about the novel, the mystery novel. He said, Ball could not have unleashed his novel at a more appropriate point in our nation's history. In terms of race relations, 1965 was as incendiary a year as America had seen. It gave us the civil rights marches from Selma to Montgomery, Malcolm X's assassination at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, and the Watts riots. In the atmosphere that engendered these events and more, the story of a black cop and a white cop teamed to solve a murder in a southern town could not have seemed more volatile. And then independent producer Walter Mirisch bought the screen rights to the novel in 1966 and had a lot of trouble convincing the studio, United Artists, to back the film because they were pretty sure it would be banned in the southern states. Hmm. And Mirisch had to do some fancy accounting tricks to convince them that he could keep the budget down low enough that even if it was banned in the southern states, he could still make money, still make money mm -hmm. off it. And then, speaking of incendiary years, the film was released in the long, hot summer of 1967. That was a rough one. Yeah. Uh, in San Francisco, it was the summer of love, but all over the rest of the country, <laughs> things were not so loving. Things were on fire. With more than 150 <laughs> race riots erupting in cities all over America. Mm -hmm. In the Heat of the Night opened August 3rd of that year, less than a week after the bloodiest of those riots, the Detroit riots, that resulted in nearly 1,200 injuries and 43 deaths. So, it was... Timely. Sure. And the climate was very much on everyone's mind in the making of this film. Originally, Jewison wanted and had planned to shoot it in Mississippi. 
Sidney Poitier, however... Said, hell the fuck no. Said, hell yeah. the fuck no. Yeah. He and Harry Belafonte had been trailed by, and he thought yeah. almost killed by the Klan. Mm-hmm. When he was down there a few years earlier, he said, I'm not going no. south of the Mason-Dixon line. So they shot it in Sparta, Illinois. Um, in fact, they changed the name of the town in the film to Sparta, Mississippi, so they wouldn't have to change any of the, the signs. signs. <laughs> And I, they only shot one scene, which an important scene, which we will talk about in Tennessee. And Poitier was not happy about that either. In fact, Poitier said he slept with a gun under his pillow mm. the entire time he, they were in Tennessee. So we'll talk more about the film after after we watch it, obviously. But the film won five Academy Awards in 1968, including editing, sound, screenplay, best actor for Rod Steiger, and best picture. Jewison lost Best Director to Mike Nichols for The Graduate, and Sidney Poitier was not nominated. Hmm. Uh, The film was followed by two sequels, both starring Poitier, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs in 1970, and The Organization in 1971. Neither was particularly a success. Same director on both? No. Oh, okay. Uh, But there are, I think there are seven novels about this character, Mm -hmm. about Virgil Tibbs. And then, as you said, the movie became a popular TV series that ran on NBC for many years. A new TV series set in modern-day Mississippi is supposed to be in development. Oh. It was originally announced as being developed by the writer-director of The Help, which is not good. (laughs) But last year, or a year or two ago, MGM announced that it was being developed by Joe Robert Cole, who was the screenwriter of People vs. O.J. Simpson. Oh. And a co-writer on Black Panther. Okay. So that's promising, although there hasn't been any news on that series for a while. It may have died in development somewhere. We could also just do new stories. That's fine, too. Yeah, that would be okay, too. <laughs> so, what are, you, what are you expecting from this film? Black cop, white cop. <laughs> Pretty much it. That's what I'm expecting. <laughs> Is it the murder of a white girl? Uh, I don't think so. I okay. think it's a white man. Okay. Uh, I have not seen this movie since I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and I barely remember it, to be perfectly honest, so okay. I'm excited to watch it again. See, I feel like the last time we did that. Well, no, but this is, it's a, a well-respected movie. I feel confident that it's going to turn out to be worth watching. Okay. I'm curious to see how much of it seems quaint and out of date now, mm-hmm. how much of it still seems very relevant now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really I'm really curious to see how this film has held up. Yeah. Over the years. Rod Steiger talking in 1998 said that when this film came out, the races in cinema, much as in real life, didn't mix. In the heat of the night wasn't just risky cinema, it was a revolution. Suddenly, police brutality, government crackdowns, the civil rights movement, they were all thrown into the American consciousness. Well, I mean, when we talk about relevance, I guess we can already answer that, you know, these are still problems. Brutality. <laughs> <laughs> Segregation. You know, Sidney Poitier did not solve racism no. through his work. So, I mean, and I guess the fact that they are considering a present day remake speaks to that as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they're still. And uh, yeah, and I would be, I'm interested to see what his role is in the sort of, I mean, if it is in line with other Poitier roles of like he is instrumental in sort of the awakening of the white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, how that would almost seem quaint, given what we know about psychology of police forces, right? If, like, 
the answer to police brutality and state-sanctioned murder of black and brown folks is not about, oh, we need more black police officers because black police officers... We, we have seen By and large, right, right, sort of adapt to the systems within right. which they're working. They're, um, they're blue first, right, black blue second. First, black second. So if this is Poitier, you know, rising above that sort of fraternity of, of, of racism, then that, that is quaint because we know that that narrative is actually much more nuanced and, and a black cop does not guarantee safety. Okay. Well, let's go find out. On your feet, boy. I mean now. Got a name, boy? Virgil Tips. Virgil. Where you come from? There ain't no trains this time anymore. I could have had you shot. <laughs> Skulls caved in. Could have been a hitchhiker. Okay, I got him. Where's my husband? I thought I told you to get the hell out of here. You aren't taking me anywhere. You dig? You gonna get yourself killed? I'm a police officer. Look, they pay you $162.39 a week just to look at bodies. Why can't you look at this one? Why can't you look at it for yourself? I do not want that Negro officer taken off this case. I need a few things. Such as ammonium hydrosulfide, benzidine, superoxide of hydrogen, copper powder, distilled water, calibers. And some toothpicks. Why won't anybody here tell me what's happened to him? Are you sure you're pregnant? Yes, I am pregnant. I can pull that fat cat down. I'm afraid you're a little late, Virgil. We already got the guilty man. May I examine this person? Yeah, you can look at him. Come on, let him look. He's left-handed, isn't he? What's that make him? Innocent. I got the motive, which is money, and the body, which is death. You're holding the wrong man. But don't you push me, boy. They call me Mr. Tibbs. What kind of people are you? And we're back during the break Nikki and I watched In the Heat of the Night. Let's maybe start by saying that In the Heat of the Night, which was named the best picture of 1967, is probably not the best picture of 1967. Mm -hmm. uh, I think from a viewpoint of strict artistic merit, it's co-nominees The Graduate or Bonnie and Clyde probably both had more plausible claims to that title. Uh, but I think it's a very good movie. There's a lot of talent involved in it. In addition to director Norman Jewison and the two leads, there's a strong supporting cast, great cinematography from the legendary Haskell Wexler, and editing from Hal Ashby, the future director of Harold and Maude and being there. And as we said before, it was a timely picture. Released in the summer of 1967, it won Best Picture at an Oscar ceremony that had been postponed due to the assassination of Martin Luther King a week earlier. 
Gregory Peck opened the ceremony talking about the death of MLK, Bob Hope closed the ceremony with an appeal for racial unity, and Rod Steiger, accepting his award for Best Actor, ended his speech with the words, We shall overcome. So there was a certain, I think, palliative, even self-congratulatory air to America's embrace of this film. And I think its memory in the consciousness maybe gives it a weight that is not unearned, but sort of weirdly out of proportion with the actual film itself. I found watching it this time I had forgotten the actual plot of the film, the murder mystery itself, and was expecting it to be something different than what it was. And I think you said that too, coming out of this, that you it was a little different than what you had expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but I think I would too, sort of knowing the reputation of it, and the sort of mythos around a Poitier film, right? Mm-hmm. And like what that would mean. I think I was expecting more a time to kill sort of thing. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I was expecting more Mississippi Burn. Yeah, Have like you that, seen that yes. one. The so that's, yeah, right? so those sorts of Where films. they're like literally taking on the clan. Right, yeah. Or that the, the sort of crux of the film, the actual, the murder, the engine of the film would be sort of based in race and racism. Right, it would be uncovering, right. exposing the racism, um, right. So that was a surprise for me. And, it, and I can't decide if that's a bug or a feature in this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Because I kind of like that it doesn't do that. Yeah. It doesn't pretend that these two people are going to solve racism in the South, Mm -hmm. which is what I think Mississippi Burning did with two white cops. Yeah. It just sort of marinates in the racism of the South. Mm -hmm. It kind of, it it takes that as a given. It's not even really a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. It's just something to navigate. And it's just the backdrop for this murder mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I don't know if I think that it's better that it's just sort of a straight murder mystery that happens to be taking place in this, um, our culturally favorite term, racially charged uh, (laughs) environment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We we don't use that term. We just say racist. Right. Or if it had been better, had it been sort of saying more, had it been this this bigger sort of quote unquote message film. Mm. Right. And I'm not sure. You and I talked a little bit afterwards, and I I was talking about sort of my struggle with trying to come up with my thoughts around this film, and I got into this, like, brain trap of trying to figure out, okay, was it trying to say something about exposing the lie of economic anxiety? Because that's sort of the straw man that has been used historically and is being, you know, heavily leaned on in contemporary times to sort of explain the support of Trump and the sort of resurgence of, of nationalism, right? right. Is that w- working class white people? Right, poor are, working class white people mm-hmm. are experiencing an acute economic anxiety, and so that is why they are allying themselves with Trump and his policies. So I was trying to think through that because this is a very poor town, and there is this subplot of the murder victim right. was an industrialist from Chicago and he who was had bringing come in a factory to build a factory right. here, where he was going to hire at least half half of the workforce was going to be black people, right. and it even came up as a potential motivation, right? He's like, oh, well, someone murdered him because they were upset that he was going to be hiring black folks to work in this factory. Right. But that turned out not to be the case. Like, racism really didn't have anything to do with the murder. Didn't have to do with the motive for the murder. And so I had to sort of unwind all of that in my brain because that's sort of where I had already decided that that's where it was going. And then I was going to make this connection between, you know, current times and the sort of lie of economic anxiety, mm-hmm. essentially. But that's not what it was. So... <laughs> no, you could... You could move this murder mystery to New York City or mm-hmm. Wisconsin or wherever, mm-hmm. or you could play it out where it is and take 
Virgil Tibbs out of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have played out exactly the same, except for the fact that they probably would never have solved the murder. Right, he was the only one doing because, police work, really. Right. Yeah. And I read I read Pauline Kael's review of this movie, and she, right from the beginning, she referred to it as a comedy thriller. And that took me a second. I was like, hmm. Okay. Like, it, that word would not occur to me. It would not occur to me to describe this as a comedy. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about it. It really sort of is. And it's sort of structured like a comedy mm-hmm. in that it's kind of, it's this fish out of water tale yeah. is what it is. Yeah. It's this, what happens if you take this guy who does not belong in this world and plop him down in the middle of it mm-hmm. and watch him bounce off all the people that are there. And she referred to lines as jokes that, again, I don't think of as jokes, but they do, it is kind of a, a setup and a punchline delivery like you know the movie opens with them arresting Virgil Tibbs mm-hmm. and then they've got him in the office and they're questioning him and they see he's got a lot of cash and they're like how did you earn all this money and he says I'm a police officer like that's it's not a joke right. but it is kind of set up that way right. where it's the challenging of the expectations of this world is what makes this movie work mm-hmm. and generates the tension mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, Yeah, I didn't read it that way at all. Because she, just to finish that, close that thought, she thought that was the stuff that worked, and then she thought the so-called message stuff and the trying to give everything else an importance didn't work as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. She talked about the last scene in the movie and said, you know, again, it's a punchline that basically Rod Steiger is acting as as the porter. Oh, yeah. For Virgil Tibbs putting him on the train, mm-hmm. but that Jewison shoots it with this sort of sappy, saccharine, like reconciliation air to it. Right. So you know that's that's how she reacted to it, which I just thought was interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting read. I mean, for me, the ending uh, rang a little bit false. You know, though there wasn't, there didn't seem to be this over sort of overarching message that you would find in something like A Time to Kill or Mississippi Burning. It did seem to be saying something about how we are all tainted by racism which is fair i mean we are all swimming in it right we are we we are all sort of misshapen by it but it almost seemed to be putting whatever prejudices that uh tibbs displayed almost on the same level as the racialized inequities of the town and i was just that bugged me a little bit yeah and then that last scene where gillespie is you know carrying tibbs luggage and puts him on the train and there's like a, a moment of sort of mutual respect and understanding it created this sort of false equivalency between these two people that i don't think is fair and i think sort of lets the town and the folks in that town off easy hmm. in their racism that's interesting because it's sort of saying oh we're all sort of racist so well okay so let's <laughs> let's leave the ending let's get to the ending later but let's talk about that element because that is that is definitely there and in fact, they arrest Virgil, and then they find out he's a cop, and then Gillespie calls his chief back in Philadelphia and hands the phone to Virgil. And one of the first things Virgil says to his chief is, no, I'm not prejudiced. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It is setting that up of Virgil being prejudiced against this small white southern mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. That is a counterpoint to the racism that he's right. encountering throughout the film. Uh, well, and even when they go to visit Endicott, well, that's it, that's the big scene, yes. right? They there's the exchange there, and then Tibbs is sure that Endicott 
is the murderer or at least had something to do with the murder and he's very sort of hyped up about it and just sort of if you just give me some time I can get this guy and we can knock him off his hill right and Gillespie says something to the effect of oh you're just like us which is basically saying like your prejudice is just right. like, like you're you're coming at this because you have personal prejudicial ideas about this white man and so you are just sure that he's guilty in the same way that we were sure you were guilty because you were a black man right. sitting in, the, in, in an empty train station when a white man happened to be murdered and so I just feel like that's no like that's not <laughs> Like you can't equate that those things. That is a false dichotomy. That's a false. Like you did, so it doesn't work for me. Um, so then, when it's when you get to this this sort of resolution where they're both like, "Oh yeah, now we understand each other and it's all fine," I'm just like, "Well, well." I think the ending is understated almost to the point of anticlimax, mm-hmm. which I kind of like about it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does a big reconciliation. Oh, Chief Gillespie has changed. All of that. He he never gives a big speech about how he's changed and learned to accept. Virgil or any of that. It is pretty much just like, okay, well, you take care of yourself. And that's right. That's all he says. Yeah. And Virgil doesn't say shit. No, he's just like, no, is he smiles and sort of gives him a nod. Right. And I'm not saying that there is this big moment of growth that happens. I mean, we have that. That scene towards the end, uh, Gillespie and Virgil are together at Gillespie's home. That's that's the heart of the movie they're, right there. You know, they're having drinks and Gillespie is sort of having a moment of vulnerability that we haven't seen from him before where he's just, you know, he admits that right. he... Is, they're hanging out like friends right. in Gillespie's house, basically sharing a bottle. Right. And Gillespie is like, you know, I'm an insomniac and no one ever comes here. And, and they find a little bit of common ground in being, you know, police officers who haven't been married and whose lives, personal lives at least right. are, are fairly empty I think is what we're supposed right. to understand he he repeat he says for he says something to Virgil he says like you're the, I think you're the first person who's ever come right. here and then he repeats that and says no nobody ever, ever comes here, here. Yeah. and in that he's saying there is no woman in my yeah. life I don't get laid yeah. I don't have a girlfriend I don't or have even a friends really or even friends yeah right um, so there's a little bit of a bonding moment and then Virgil goes to say something like you know I you know I understand and try to show empathy and immediately Gillespie sort of flips and he's just like oh, I don't need pity from you right. not from you exactly. like how dare you right. pity me right and so it's this idea of again sort of coming and that's I think that's where I kept getting stuck on this um the class piece of it a little bit too this sort of, well, I should say the intersection of class and racism right because the, the sort of worth of poor white folks is so dependent on being able to at least be higher right than black right. people and so right. like, I don't need your pity right how dare you um, look how dare down you on look me. down on me I mean, that's going back to To Kill a Mockingbird right. that's there, right? right. It's, that's the mistake Tom Robinson makes in the courtroom is to say that he felt sorry right. for a white woman. Right. And that's here in this movie from the beginning, too. I mean, the moment Gillespie finds out that Virgil makes more money than he makes. Yes. Is, you know, like, how is that possible? Yeah. So we have that. So I, I, I'm not making, I'm not suggesting that Gillespie changes because I think in that conversation with the two of them towards the end of the movie in his home, it shows that he really hasn't grown really right. very much at all. And it is definitely a situation of like, this black person may be okay, but I'm still not necessarily okay with black people. Right. But I think though the ending doesn't contain some sort of big speech moment. Some big phony. Right. right. I do think in the subtlety of it, it signals a resolution that I, that I feel is unearned. And I feel like maybe allows the audience to walk away from the film feeling like, oh, there was resolution and oh, we can all get along if we just sort of sit down and, and, and work together. And so that I think that's what bugs me. It's just like, well, it didn't really earn that. And we know that he hasn't changed. And that may be why it has sort of developed this energy around it of being this sort of more of a, a moment film 
because people were able to walk away and be like, okay, these two guys got right. together. The northern black guy yeah, and right. the southern white guy got along and solved a crime. Shake and hands and, and you know, uh, and leave each other. Right. And so I think that that's, that was... That's what of, you always yeah. talk about, which is the, you know, if everybody could just have a black right. friend... Then racism is then solved. Then racism will go away. Well, no, that's right. actually not how it works. But the thing about Virgil's prejudices or biases mm -hmm. is interesting because I agree with you. It, the film does try to set that up as sort of a false equivalency. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it was important because this was one of the rare opportunities for Sidney Poitier to show a little anger, mm -hmm. a little sense of injustice. Ebert's review of this, he, he talked about that. He said it's one of the rare times where Sidney Poitier gets to be angry. Mm -hmm. And it's like, first of all, he's not that angry no. in the film. But yeah, that, that scene at Endicott's place, from the second he gets there, he is as happy as we have seen him in the entire movie. Mm -hmm. He is enjoying being there. He's smiling. He's got a little spring in his step. Like, he likes being there. He likes being on this cotton plantation and interrogating this guy. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, when he comes out of there, he is very excited at the idea that he could tear this guy down. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. I think, because the guy is super racist. Yeah. Do you want to talk here about that scene? Because that's, <laughs> as much as anything, that's what this movie is remembered for. That was the slap heard around the yeah. world. Uh, yeah. So, after doing some, and let's, first let's start by saying, Poitier is basically the innocence project for like poor white people in this family. He just gets <laughs> poor white people off of false accusations. Like that's really what he's doing. <laughs> so it wasn't until he said, you could really show us white dudes, how smart you are that Tibbs was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go ahead and work. That's on true. That's a good point. Yeah. He just wanted to show up some white people. He's like, all right, that I'll do. And he did show the shit out of it. He did. Like, Cause he actually did police work. Whereas everybody else was just chilling. Not a good detective. No, he's not. Every suspect that comes along, he's pretty happy. Yeah. To and I think be. at one of their little, you know, town hall slash clan meetings, they said something like, we didn't hire him because he was homicide. Like, we hired him, and it was like, we didn't expect him to be good on homicide. So, And he is not. So, yeah. The TV series obviously moved Virgil down there permanently. Yes. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think Gillespie needs... Just the expertise. <laughs> needs someone you need someone else. who can actually handle Because the homicide. next murder that comes along... Yeah. They're not going to be able to handle it. They're not going to be good no, at it. They're going to arrest like eight poor white folks who had nothing to do with it nothing you're right there's like six different poor white trash people like, that who would have gone do down it. for this crime that poor white person is not the the murderer you need to let them go which okay cool um which is kind of, which is i think one of the reasons he's so excited yeah. when he gets to endicott you know this might be the dude and i don't this, want to arrest yeah. the homeless yeah. drifter here i want to go after systemic racism right. in the form of the plantation owner so in, in the process of investigating the murder of Colbert, who is the um, wealthy scion from Chicago who's coming down to open a factory in Sparta, mm -hmm. Mississippi, he finds a sort of particular uh, root or something in plant, plant in, in Colbert's car and realizes that it's a... Which is... Stop, because he, he is basically black Sherlock Holmes. He is very in this movie. knowledgeable. This is very Sherlock of Holmes. many things. I'm scraping up the soil samples. <laughs> this soil is only found in the... Highlands of, you know. I can't imagine there was great lab equipment at his disposal in Sparta, Mississippi, but yes, he, he does a lot of shit. Yeah. But anyway, he realizes that it, it only could have come from 
Endicott's farm. And Endicott is basically a plantation owner and very wealthy white man in Sparta. So he and Gillespie go out there to interrogate him. And it is a wonderful little moment because Tibbs turns it on. Like he's just, he's very polite. Yeah. And, you know, very well-spoken Negro. And they talk about orchids and, and he's very knowledgeable about orchids to Endicott's surprise. Yeah. And then we get this horrifying sort of speech from Endicott um, about how how uh, the care of orchids is akin to uh, the care of black folk and yeah. this whole idea like black people need you know a lot of care and feeding and cultivation and that takes a lot of time and that's one thing that Corbett didn't understand right and so that's where we learn about the, what had been a, a, a simmering tension between these two sort of wealthy white men as they are sort of different ideas about where black people belonged right in society and we have seen coming in we have seen black people in the cotton in fields the field, picking and it's, cotton it's basically gone with the wind yes Yes. And it's juxtaposed with, we're in the car with Tibbs, and he's, you know, in his suit, very professional, yeah. very successful man, driving by his fellow black folks yeah. who are in the field. And he's cotton. looking at them, and they're looking at him. Yeah, and, and Gillespie even says something like, none of that for you, huh, Tibbs? And, yeah. like, sort of trying to knock him down a little bit of a pig. This was, by I mentioned before we started, this was this was the one scene that was shot in, Tennessee. in the South. Mm-hmm. It was shot in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because they needed a cotton, cotton fields, yeah. plantation, mm-hmm. but also because I think they felt like that scene needed the tension of mm-hmm. being and actually being in the South mm-hmm. as much as Poitier did not want to go to the South. <laughs> Understandably so. <laughs> and so eventually the niceties sort of fall away and... Tibbs goes about the business of accusing Endicott of either murdering directly or being involved in the murder of uh, Corbett and gets a little heated and Endicott becomes very indignant about this sort of uppity Negro who's coming up in his little greenhouse and accusing him of murder. And so he slaps Tibbs. I like like that Endicott is actually polite, too. Yes, he's very polite. Which is a very, it, it feels, you know, he's not... He's not instantly openly racist no, to Tibbs. He's very polite. And no. Until Tibbs starts actually questioning right. him. No, about until the you murder. get out of line. They're very polite as long yeah. as you stay in your place. Yeah. And so he slaps Tibbs. Yeah. And he immediately <laughs> doesn't miss a beat. Tibbs slaps the shit out of him. <laughs> and it is quite an amazing moment. It's an incredible moment. And your your breath sort of catches is like, oh shit. Um so what's wonderful is Gillespie is there and he is very much like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. He's in he has situation. never seen this. Never before. seen anything like it before. And Endicott is like, Gillespie, are you you saw what he did? Are you gonna stand there? Or are you gonna do something about it? And Gillespie's like, I have no idea. What yeah. to do right now. He says, what are you going to do about it? And Gillespie just says, I don't know. Yeah. And then Endicott basically says what, you know, every sort of make America great again person wants to say, which is there was a time when I could have had you shot for yeah. doing something like that. And the mayor says that later. Mm-hmm. The mayor says our last chief would have shot him right there in self-defense. Right. And it's extra lovely because... Endicott's houseboy, essentially, this older black gentleman who is... Yeah, that's great. (laughs) uh, The butler, I guess, Mm -hmm. is standing there during this whole exchange, witnesses everything, and Gillespie and Tibbs storm out, and it's just Endicott with the butler, and he is... Endicott's at the the point of tears. He's just so embarrassed and ashamed, and the butler just sort of shakes his head at him and walks out. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) 
There's your white fragility. Yes. Like that guy, he just starts crying. He just starts crying because you've totally destroyed his world. Yeah. That was all that he had. That was his entire self-worth. And you took it away from him. There's a lot of Hollywood legend around this scene, which all of which taken with a grain of salt. What you will hear is that it was completely improvised and no one knew Sidney Poitier was going to hit him back. Oh, right. That is not true. Okay. Um, Poitier's story is that he, is that that was not in the original script. And he went to Jewison and said, there's no way he's going to stand there and let this guy slap him mm. without slapping him back. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't it wasn't improvised on set, but it was... Added. It was Poitier's idea, mm-hmm. according to Poitier. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the screenwriter would say about that. Mm-hmm. And that Poitier insisted that that be in there, and he insisted that it not be cut in screenings of the film that played in the South, mm-hmm. which is something that otherwise could have... You know, right. Sometimes they would edit films. Right. To play them in the South. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, yeah. you want to talk about your milestone moments yeah. in movies. That's a pretty big one. Yeah. Well, just in general, too, there was a lot of, or there were a number of instances where the sort of transgressive intimacy of Tibbs as black man yes. making contact with white skin. There's so much focus on his hands. On his hands, this movie. on white skin, and sort of where they are and, and what they're touching. There's a, towards the beginning, when they go to the funeral parlor to inspect the body, the camera just sort of lingers over him as as he's, you know, inspecting Colbert's body with just, like, you know, clinical precision. Yeah. And again, it's very intimate. Like, he's taking off his shoes and socks and touching his bare feet and... and touching his face. Touching and, his yeah. face. And it and, you and, can and feel, there's two white... Right. The funeral parlor owner and the coroner are both there. And you can just feel the tension in the room as they're watching this black man touch this white man's body as almost as, like, it's being defaced. Yeah. And then there's a scene with Tibbs and Colbert's... Wife. Wife. Yeah. And... Lee Grant. He tells her, you know, your husband's been murdered. And she, a number of times in that scene, sort of jerks away from his touch. He reaches out to comfort her and she flinches away from him several times. And then finally he's able to sort of put his arms around her and guide her to her chair and sit her down. And there's a moment where he's holding her hand and she has, she pulls it up to her face as she starts to sort of cry. And then she asks him to leave so that she can sort of be alone and have that moment. There's another instance where they've arrested, like, the 18th wrong person. And <laughs> this is Harvey you're talking this about? This is Harvey, and they yes, bring him in. This is Scott Wilson, <laughs> famous to modern viewers as uh, Herschel on The Walking <laughs> Didn't even Dead. <laughs> but they bring him in handcuffed, and Tibbs is like, can I just do a quick inspection on him? And again, Harvey sort of jerks a little bit away because he's like, I don't want some black man touching me. Yeah. Um, but then he realizes that he might be of help. So, again, we get a shot of Poitiers hands sort of going up Harvey's arm and and just sort of feeling around and things like that. So are there a number of moments in the film where you you feel the tension is all about sort of the proximity between, you know, black and white skin? Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about the two, I think it's just two interactions Tibbs has with black people in this community? Mm, I mean, I think the power of those scenes whether it was intentional or not. And it, and it's the same with the scene where they're driving through the plantations. It's yeah. just the juxtaposition of a figure like Tibbs being in close proximity to quote-unquote regular black folk, right? Mm-hmm. Like, So when he decides that he's going to be staying in town a little bit longer, Gillespie takes him to the sort of local garage to get a car so he can get around. And it's run by a black gentleman. And it's obviously he, like his family's there. It's a little family. 
family business. And there's a cute little exchange where the garage owner says, like, well, what are you doing? And Tibbs answers something to the effect that I'm helping them solve a murder. I'm, I'm their whipping boy. Basically, I'm here to be the whipping right, boy. Right, right. You know, the garage owner sort of laughs, and he's like, okay, well, where are you staying? And Tibbs is like, oh, I can just go find, like, a motel or something in town. And, again, the garage owner just laughs, and is just like, you have no idea where you are. And <laughs> he's like, you're going to stay here with us, with yeah. our family. Yeah. Um, like, no questions asked. It's like, you're just going to you're gonna stay here. Now, we never see them again, which no. I, I sort of would have liked to have I would have, too. I really would have liked that. It would have been nice to see Tibbs coming back after a day of all this bullshit mm-hmm. and going back to that house to this with family. that family. Yeah. But that is that moment of his honesty there with him mm-hmm. is a nice moment. Yeah. Because this is what the mayor has said to Gillespie. Right. Something like, well, if if he succeeds, you get the credit. Right. If he fails, he it's gets the blame. Yeah. And that moment tells us Virgil is very aware of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Like he has no illusions on that point. Right. But he would only be honest about that to another black right. man. Right, right. And then the other scene we get is at the end of the film yes. with Mama Kaliba. Right. Mama Kaliba, played by Bea Richards, who is just a force in, in, in film yeah. over a number of years. She was also in um, Beloved and a number of other things. Yeah. She plays the same year she played Poitier's mother. Right. And, uh, I guess, I guess she's coming, coming to, to dinner. dinner. And so, again, you have this exchange of, like, a black person looking at Virgil and saying, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and so she says, I'm like, you're working for Mr. Charlie. Yeah. And they're going to steal your soul. So why are you doing this? Like, why are you even in Involved with these people who don't care about you yeah. and who are just using you, and and you are talking like code switching. Yes, Virgil. Virgil changes yes. completely. Yeah, the way he scene. speaks changes very drastically as he talks to her and just tries to get her one comfortable with him and to assure her that he's not whitey, basically. Right. And to also, right, just to get information out of her. And so, and there's this great um, line where he says something like, you know, you can go to prison and, you know, there's a big difference between doing white time and doing color time. And color yeah. time is like the worst time to do. And, but yeah. And the only other time he does that code switching, interestingly, is when he's in the cell with Harvey. Mm. And he's trying to get Harvey to sort of talk to him about, okay, where were you during that time? And can, do you have an alibi? And, and initially, Harvey is uncomfortable with even being in the same cell with Virgil. He's like, I don't want to be in a cell with this black man. Like, yeah. why, why is he right. in here? You know, why are you wearing white man's clothes? And who are you supposed to be? And Virgil, it's the first time... The sort of physicality of Virgil in all these scenes is very important. Mm-hmm. For most of the film, he is very tense. He's very sort of coiled, right? Yeah. But in the cell with Harvey, and again, this is sort of an instrument to get the person he's speaking to make them comfortable and make them feel like he, they can talk to him. He sort of slouches down on the, the cot and he's like, you know, man, what's up? And let's just, you know, it's cool. And we're going to be cool, Harvey. Let's just talk <laughs> about this. And like, so he does a little bit of code switching there as well. That's a really, not, that's a really good point. Cause actually yeah. now that I think about it, he does that throughout the movie mm-hmm. with everyone he meets. Mm-hmm. Like he meets everybody on their, on level. their level. He's very much a chameleon in that mm-hmm. way. He can, you know, speak to people he does that with Endicott. Mm-hmm. He speaks to Endicott as an equal. He speaks to Harvey as an equal. He speaks to Mama Kaliba as an equal. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we haven't we haven't talked about Poitier. You want to talk about Poitier? I mean, haven't we just been talking about Poitier? Um. <laughs> but you know, we talked we talked at the beginning of the episode about how in talking about all this milestone stuff, we sort of lose track of him mm-hmm. as an artist. Mm-hmm. He is fucking amazing. He is brilliant. He really is very, very good. Yes. And you do see that anger and that mm-hmm. resentment mm-hmm. come through very clearly in every frame of yeah. this movie. 
I mean, that first scene where Officer Wood first comes upon Tibbs in the train station, it's late at night, and Officer Wood immediately just assumes, okay, well, this is the man that killed Right, I- I'm out looking for a suspect. Right. Came I just came across, across black this black guy. dude. Guy has to be him. And the beauty of that scene is that Tibbs says nothing. Yeah. Like, there is no point where he tries to correct the assumption. He does not put up any really kind of fight or anything. Like, Officer Wood. He doesn't Wood, say, I'm a no, cop. Puts him up against the walls, like spread him out, and he he just eats it all. But you see it on his face of just like the indignancy yeah. of it. That first shot where he's he's got his hands up on mm-hmm. the wall and his head is down, and you can just see in his mm-hmm. eyes. And it's those moments where the illusion of like the right way to present is is sort of torn away. Like I'm sitting here in a fucking suit. Like does it look like <laughs> I just murdered someone? Right. Like I'm, you know. And even again, when they find the money on him, the assumption is that he stole it. Yeah. No questions asked. But anyway, so yeah, so that first interaction where Poitier says nothing is still very powerful and very tense. And it's all in his body and all in his face. And it continues when Officer Wood brings him to the police station and he and Gillespie meet for the first time. And Gillespie, just as Officer Wood was, is sure that this is the man that murdered the good white man. Yeah. Again, asks no questions of him. And for most of that encounter, Poitier is silent. And he's just sort of standing there letting Gillespie sort of unspool this tale, <laughs> right? That he's like, oh, and this is when you killed the white man and then you took the white man's wallet and, you know, this whole thing. And 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 his positioning in the scene is really powerful because he's sitting behind his desk and his feet are up sort of on his desk and he has his hand resting on the gun rack that's yeah. right next to him. So, yeah. you know, and then finally Tibbs just sort of throws his wallet on the desk and Gillespie is able to see that he has a badge and he's a police officer. And then there's this moment of like, oh, shit. And you can see that his brain sort of breaks because it's like <laughs> everything I just assumed was wrong and I don't understand what's going on in the world anymore. So, And so you see that sort of throughout the film, a lot of that sort of anger and rage is just bubbling under the surface. And it only sort of comes out in flashes and like that interaction with Endicott. Or when, I can't remember who said it, but someone was like, who do you think you are? Who, what do they call you? And then we get the infamous line, they right. call me Mr. Tibbs. Yeah. So there are only very few moments where he allows it to sort of escape. But otherwise, he's very tight and very controlled in his movements. But yeah, no, I, th- I think he's brilliant. What about Rod Steiger? Steiger was great. Steiger... He was great. And I... I... He was better than I realized because this is my concept of Rod Steiger. I don't, I haven't seen a lot of Rod Steiger movies. I've seen On the Waterfront, mm-hmm. a couple of things. But when I saw him, I went and I watched his acceptance speech for the Oscar. He doesn't talk like that. He fucking talks like David Niven or somebody. <laughs> like th- that is not his voice that he is using in this. So this was a, a complete character that he built here. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, no, he was great. I, he was. That perfect, I mean, when you think Southern white police chief, that's yeah. what you see and that's that's sort of what you think. And, you know, the, the idea that they sort of all look like they're like two seconds away from a fucking heart attack or something. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's right on the edge. Um, <laughs> that scene where they are first examining the body in the alley and he's chewing that gum so aggressively. And I'm just like, oh my God. But he plays someone who was smart enough to know that he didn't know everything. Right. Smart enough to know he isn't very smart. But still very much invested in sort of the the sort of racist hierarchy of the day, right? Of like, there's a a place for everybody and you need to know your place. So we see him sort of struggle a little bit with those tensions. And there are people in the town that challenge him when they see that that Gillespie is giving Tibbs maybe a little bit more rope. Terrible. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> then, unfortunate choice. Unfortunate of words, choice of words. To like do the work, yeah. then they would have. So we talk about that moment when um, Tibbs slaps Endicott. Everyone else thinks, well, you should have shot that black man right there. Yeah. And he didn't. There's a moment where he uh, rescues Tibbs from a group of racist bigots who were trying to yeah. essentially murder him. Um, that that scene, by the way, was again something that was not in the original script mm. and was based on what happened to Poitier and Belafonte. Oh wow! When they were in the south, okay, of uh, the car Being chasing chased. them mm-hmm. and bumping into their, you know, I don't think they actually chased them into a factory and all mm-hmm. of that, but that was mm-hmm. that scene was inspired by that. Yeah. And there's a moment, I mean, in that scene, he comes upon it and there's a pause. He doesn't immediately jump in to stop the kids from being assholes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually he's like, okay, kids, that's enough. And it, it, he almost isn't approaching it as like, this is a potential lynching that I'm stopping. It's just these kids are getting a little bit out of line. Right. He says, oh, you had right. your fun. You had now your get fun. out of here now. Just go ahead and get out. So again, it wasn't this big sort of moral moment. It no, was just he doesn't like, arrest right. them. <laughs> it's just like, so yeah. So I, I thought he was an interesting character. And I think I think it's to his credit and I think it's to the screenplay's credit that it's not overdone. No. It would have been easy to make this guy a real cartoon yeah. racist. Yeah. And neither the screenplay nor Steiger overplays it mm-hmm. to that extent. Mm-hmm. He does seem like a human being. He seems he's a little more complicated than that. Well, we haven't, we haven't talked about the actual mystery, which to me is kind of the weak point it's definitely the weak point i mean again like we said when we first began like i was expecting the murder to sort of be a a mechanism to sort of work out all of this sort of racial tension and shit like that and that it was not that at all right but yeah so a wealthy white man from chicago who's planning to open a factory down in sparta is murdered bashed in the back of the head um and there are a number of suspects <laughs> first being Tibbs and we find obviously that it was not Tibbs and then it was Harvey Harvey Scott Wilson's character who just turned out to be you know essentially somebody who was down on his luck and he saw a wallet and he took the wallet lying next to the body and he just happened just wrong place wrong time yeah. sort of thing um and then the next suspect is officer Sam Wood yes this is Warren Oates again famous to Modern viewers, and you now. And me now. As the drill sergeant (laughs) in uh, Stripes, Sergeant Holka. He had the unfortunate luck of depositing sort of exactly the amount of money that was missing from the victim's (laughs) wallet. There's a a lot of really convenient red herrings in this story. Um, But it turns out it had nothing to do with the murder at all. (laughs) And then... We thought it was Endicott, and it wasn't Endicott. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, we we start to make the connection that Dolores is that her name? It has something to do with Dolores. It has something to do with Dolores. So Dolores, underage exhibitionist, sixteen-year-old exhibitionist, <laughs> who apparently likes to walk around her home naked at night, which is fine. That's her business. But she does it with the windows open and making sure that every man in town can see her do it. Yes, officer Officer Wood likes to cruise by. He He's got a time down every night. By every night. To look at her. So Dolores is pregnant (laughs) and her brother brings her down to the station and he believes that it's Officer Wood that has uh, impregnated his sister and he wants Officer Wood charged with statutory rape as Mm -hmm. he should be because she was 16. And then we get a very weird scene of her sort of recounting their quote unquote relationship (laughs) and it's hypersexual yeah. and very just talking I, about having sex on gravestones and the feel of the marble against your skin and it's weird and she but the way that she is 
I'm not sure that it was a good idea that she was so sort of just hyper hypersexual. It was yeah. very odd because it it almost seemed to be excusing the fact that a grown man would be having sex with her because obviously she is essentially a Lolita who right. is begging someone to come. Which again, I think back to that character in To Kill a Mockingbird mm-hmm. too. It's like I, there's, and I'm sure the study has been done, but there's a whole study to be done about the depiction of young Southern young women. Southern women, yeah. and yes, yeah, but. it was just like the heat is just too much. Yeah. I I need to have sex. And so it's it's odd because it could have just been she was a 16-year-old girl and someone took advantage of her right. and it could have been very straightforward and they make it, they muddy it more than I think that they needed to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so again, it's like this weird false equivalency happening of like, well, she's a little hot. So right. um, we understand why men would want to uh, take advantage of her. So anyway, so she's pregnant. She has said that it was Sam Wood that did it to her. And during this whole exchange, Tibbs is in the room and her brother is furious that Gillespie would have allowed Tibbs to stay in the room while his sister had to say this very sort of right. intimate um, this details and it's like how dare you sort of embarrass a white woman and make her say these things in front of a, a, a black man didn't call him a black man and that's sort of the light bulb for Tibbs and he, he realizes that whoever actually knocked up Dolores is probably the one that murdered Colbert because they needed money to fund a back alley abortion. Right. Essentially. So what this film is actually about is lack of reproductive health care in the <laughs> South, which is actually a serious problem. Yes. It is. <laughs> it's a very serious problem in the contemporary Mama South. is still in business. Yes, in and she's making money by doing what I imagine are not super safe illegal abortions on young girls. So we have Tibbs go to Mama Kaliba and try to get out of her the name of the man who knocked up Dolores. Mama Kaliba doesn't know the name. She just knows it's some white boy, which what more does she need to know? Right. Um, and then Dolores shows up for the abortion, <laughs> sees Tibbs, runs out. Tibbs runs after her and surprise, surprise, the murderer slash impregnator is right there and he's shadowed. So we don't quite see who it is. And then Tibbs doesn't quite see who it is. And then we realize that it is the creepy ass diner employee, Ralph. Ralph. Who's been like murdering flies and being gross the whole? Yeah, film. we've we've had we haven't talked about Ralph because he doesn't seem to he be an important character right, he's, until now. He's the weird guy that runs the diner. He kills the flies and dirtiest diner ever. And... I don't know why anyone would eat there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's Ralph. So this this is the flaw in the mystery yeah, to me. Yeah, it's is just, that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And when you try to put the timelines together, it really doesn't no, make any sense. No, and Tim's detective work yeah. is really not, despite his Sherlock Holmes abilities. I mean, to be fair, he gets as far as whoever impregnated Dolores is the one that murdered. So he does get, he just doesn't know who impregnated Dolores. Right. So that's the part that he doesn't There's know. A, I, went, I read, I found a script online, and I don't know what version of the, the screenplay it was, but it was not quite the finished version. Because there was a line in there at the end of it that is not in the movie, mm-hmm. where Gillespie says to Tibbs, when did you know it was Ralph? Mm-hmm. And Tibbs says, when he pointed a gun at yeah. me. Like, when he came out of the shadows and yeah. pointed a gun at me. That's how this mystery is solved. It's not solved through any, you know, ratiocination here. Yeah. And so then we have a very weird little confrontation moment because... Throughout this whole period, the group of racists that had tried to attack Tibbs in the factory and now the brother of Dolores and a couple of other folks have decided they're going to go and basically lynch Tibbs. Right. 
And so they're going around looking for him. They get to Mama Kaliba's and they're there with guns and Ralph has his gun and they're all aiming at Tibbs. And then Tibbs says, you need to check your sister's wallet because she has $100 in there to pay for an abortion that Ralph is making her get. They find the $100 and the whole time she's like, he's a liar, he's a liar, which historically white women calling black men liars and and leading to their death. You know, right. So luckily that doesn't happen. The mob sort of starts to turn on to Ralph, but Ralph shoots Dolores' brother and kills him. And then Tibbs is able to sort of grab Ralph and, and take him in. And sort of that's, it's, it's a weird little sort of melee of stuff happening there. Yeah, it is. Um, and then we get to back to the police station and Ralph is giving his confession. And essentially it was, he was hitchhiking. He caught a ride with Colbert back to town. And Ralph saw that as his opportunity to basically mug him. And he was like, I just wanted to sort of tap him on the head and seal his wallet. I didn't mean to kill him, but he killed him. And that was the murder. Very. Very petty. Very squalid. It's about abortion access. (laughs) Wouldn't have had to happen if they they just had a Planned Parenthood or something. (laughs) But again, I, I kind of like what a squalid little murder this is. It would be a pretty big coincidence if Tibbs happened to get off the train and find this big racist conspiracy that he has to untangle. No, that, I mean, that it's like he just happens in the middle of this regular Southern murder. murder. Sure. No, I guess, and that's, I, I mean, I go back to what I said at the beginning, like, not knowing whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, but it was, my expectation going in was, you know, yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell, sort of moment, and I didn't get that, so... <laughs> You like that moment way too much. Because it's that a movie. fucking brilliant moment. <laughs> okay, any final thoughts on this film? Does it deserve its place? And in- I mean, it's good. I don't know. I mean, I this definitely wouldn't have been a best picture for me. Mm. But I do think Poitier is brilliant in yes, it. Yes, he is. So, but yeah, I thought it was great. It 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 defied my expectations, which I, I guess at the very least is a point in its favor, even even if I'm not sure if that was a good thing or not. Well, any week we do this and the movie <laughs> defies your expectations, <laughs> I call that a win. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week when we segue directly into a film directed by the great Sidney Poitier, 1980's Stir Crazy, starring Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. I'm looking forward to this one. Are you? Yeah. I'm a big Richard Pryor fan, so I'm all on board. And, you know, as long as it's not the toy, I'm This good. is the, the white guy, black guy, buddy picture. Yeah. This is, that's our genre. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, we have Blazing Saddles, so. <laughs> no, I mean, that's you and I. We are. Oh. Oh, we're not buddies, though. We are the mo- <laughs> No. I have no interest in teaching you to be a better person. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can send us an email, leave us a comment, find our social media and contact information, or make a donation to support the podcast. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. They call me Mr. Tib. No, that was terrible. That was really bad. You want to try that again? No, I don't don't think I can do it. Come on, you can do it. I feel like I used to be able to do it. I don't think I lost my poitier. They call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> How was that? That was, that was pretty right. good, right? That was all right. <laughs> it was all right. <laughs>